You see, people collect all kinds of things. New, old, priceless, worthless. Darling, it doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. Those mothballs shouldn't get to keep all the secrets. This is the Mothball Prophecies. Hello and welcome to the Mothball Prophecies. I'm Samantha Mashburn. And I'm Jill Huffman. And today we're sitting down with someone who is enlightening the world of TikTok, my favorite place to exist on the internet, about props and movie history and the behind the scenes that goes into some of your favorite stuff. He's a maker, hobbyist, cosplayer, and so much more. Welcome to the show, Michael Corey of Props to History. Thank you very much for having me. Oh man, we are... We have talked on a several different episodes of wanting to have somebody that's on that side of the the world of film and TV and knows a little bit more about it. So we're delighted to be able to pick your brain today. Absolutely. Uh, again, thank you for having me. I, I, I obviously love this subject matter, so it's uh, <laughs> it's quite easy to talk about it for me. Which we love that. And I was, you know, I was also like struck by just like, your maker abilities and getting stuff to match what it looks like in film. So where I'm so excited to just talk about and nerd out about stuff like that. Well, with yeah, you. that's what 35 years of doing this gets you like being that much of a nerd for that long. And uh, <laughs> it's just all practice at this stage. <laughs> right. You're like, I got it. I'm going to mix that color. Star Wars blue. Here we go. Let's do it. Oh, that's a subject I could go on forever about the science of color matching and uh, uh, the, the difficulties of it. And also the, Quite frankly, the the joy I get from it when I find that exact match. I can understand like m- some of it. I do hair for a living, and like color matching and mixing like different types of fashion colors. Or like I've had people bring in like anime pictures to match like hair and hair color too. And I'm like, I will do my best, <laughs> but <laughs> you are not Vegeta. I can't. I can't just do what's there. So I, I can appreciate that and the attention to detail that goes into it. And I was struck by on your questionnaire about you are a late in life collector. Yes. Yeah. So you started collecting in 2018, right? Yeah. As, as far as movie props goes. Yeah. I, I only began that side of what I do in 2018. Um, but per, leading up to that, I'd been a model builder and I collected militaria and then old cameras, et cetera, just old machines. Cause mm-hmm. I've always had an affinity for old machines. And then me getting into prop collecting actually stemmed from me getting into cosplay the year before that. Oh, wow. When I, when I made a, when I made a costume for a horse the, and the that's AT-AT, what started it all, right? The ATAT the... for a Clydesdale. So and, cool. Uh, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really the dumbest thing I've ever done. <laughs> and, um, I hope, I hope to uh, do something dumber here in the near future, but it it started out with a conversation with my dear friend Bree, who owned the horse, mm-hmm. and she said there was probably alcohol involved. I'm not going to yeah. lie, <laughs> yeah. and she said, "Can you make a costume for my horse?" And I said, "Sure. How hard can it be?" And it ended up being quite difficult. Well, because it was <laughs> but, a draft horse, a Clydesdale, right? Yep, the two thousand pound, eighteen and a half hand high Whoa. Clydesdale, yeah, named Mona. Yeah. And uh, the costume only, all told, only weighed like 45 pounds, which for a draft horse is nothing. Right. And um, her harness weighs less than that costume did, or weighs more than the costume did. And um, oh. it was it was fully lit with sound. And uh, it, it ended up actually, I posted a picture of it on the internet after it was first completed. 
and it went obscenely viral. Yeah. And it's it ended up on it's apparently still on T-shirts being sold. <laughs> uh, and it's also was a billboard in Japan for a while. Apparently. I was going to say, was it in Japan? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, it was. And um, it, it it was it had an interesting effect, which I absolutely it was my favorite part about it was that it was for a um, thing called the World Clydesdale Show. It's this big massive show for Clydesdales and it was in Wisconsin that year around Halloween and they oh. do a costume class which is what started this and I was told by a lot of people when I got there who already knew about it because of how viral it went that no one really took the costume class seriously until I did that and then all of these people with very few months left put in an enormous amount of effort to make what ended up becoming absolutely gorgeous costumes for their horses so I like to feel that I at least inspired some people yeah. to delve a little deeper into their maker toolbox, if you will, yeah, to come up with some absolutely gorgeous costumes and so gorgeous, in fact, that we only took sixth place. Oh, holy <laughs> yeah. shit. Yeah. Some of them were insane, like involving, there was, I believe the winner was actually, uh, the theme was Nightmare Before Christmas okay. and oh, wow. it, in, it involved a full body, um, basically suit for the horse as a skeleton uh, dressed as Jack Skellington and then pulling a wagon with like nine different actors on it, different characters and just over the top. And I was, wow. I was, I was honestly tickled pink by the whole thing. Um, but it was, it was that inspiration. And, and it, like, I like to feel that maybe my work inspired other people and yeah. that was oh, the, my sure. big takeaway from it. I love that. It was the catalyst that they were like, Oh, well, all right guys. Elbow deep, I know they're like, oh, this. we got to step up our game now. <laughs> As all the uh, horses are like, you assholes! I just wanted to right? sheet over my head. <laughs> right? There were, I mean, there were a couple of those, and uh, there was also one dressed as a sunflower, which actually led to a rather hilarious interaction with Adam Savage. Um, yeah, I know. This Wait, is a, how? A weird seg- Hold on. It's a weird. It's a weird segue. I know, uh, but I'll, I will tell this story because it's hilarious. Please. So, Mona. What is like within the horse world, I guess it's a regular term, bomb proof. She, nothing upsets her at all. She does not spook. She does not get scared. But there was, when we walked out with her in full costume, there was a horse dressed as a sunflower. And that apparently freaked her out so bad that the costume ultimately was destroyed. The the ADAT costume was so badly damaged (gasps) from her freaking out. It was unsavable. So it's now insulation in my barn. That's, that's what happened to it. In true um, ATAT fashion. Oh yeah, absolutely. It just, it just, <laughs> it, it, it died. Uh, the costume. And some weeks, well, some months later, I went to a uh, thing called NomCon in Chattanooga, Tennessee, for Nation of Makers, which I'm very much a part of. And Adam Savage is on the board of directors for that. He was there. It was, I think, the second time I'd met him at that stage. And I had talked to him online about this horse costume and told him the story of the sunflower and when i saw him i walked up to him and somehow he recognized me because he looked at me and the first words out of his mouth were fuck that sunflower (laughs) (laughs) oh that is yeah and it it turned into a really wonderful long conversation about movie props with adam so that was uh, that was <laughs> and you were just like i hate every moment of this this is oh no it was it was it was horrible it was yeah. absolutely horrible and uh no he's and and, and it's it's weird because he has a thing that he always says that don't meet your heroes i've, I've heard him say that several mm-hmm. times and he ended up being 
honestly just as chill yeah. and yeah. Yeah. Uh, amazing a person in real life as he is on TV. So oh. it was it was quite a bit of fun just hanging out with him talking about movie props. And oh. that is one of the things, too, because I apply that don't meet your heroes thing. We've had a couple of people yeah. on the show that I've looked up to in the world of vintage and whatever. And I was like, before the interview, I was like, Jill is like, what if they suck so bad? Right. <laughs> what if they're not anything like I want them to be? But luckily, we've been I, I have, I've, I've been very fortunate to meet a lot of people in the prop and special effects world in Hollywood and like out in L.A. And... I've rarely been disappointed mm-hmm. uh, when I met them. There have been a couple instances, but you know, you can always chalk it up to maybe I caught them on a bad day, right? Kind of thing. But th- it does, it does. Unfortunately, it does happen. But mm-hmm. um, I've been quite fortunate that it's been rare. So oh, yeah. Well, and they're people too, right? They got a lot of shit they oh, got to yeah, worry about. Absolutely. And- they're still human beings with yeah. lives and everything. Right. We just sometimes get a, things we go just sideways. Get to see their lives played yeah. out. We get to see a small facet. Right. of their life yeah. not the, anything in totality mm-hmm. so i want to back up just a little bit to yeah. your collecting before prop making because mm-hmm. before we started the show we knew of like military collections and things like that yeah. right but since learning about some different things i want to talk about what you were collecting like did you grow up in a house of collectors or was it <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh yes actually so my father who has now passed, but my father could be described as an obscenely well-organized hoarder. (laughs) Um, He collected model kits, um, plastic scale model kits with, uh, when he passed away, it was around 7,000 model kits in his collection. Uh, But he also collected military equipment. He collected firearms. um, And it was in those kind of three areas that he stuck, but it was just to such a degree that it would fill up the house. Mm. So to me, that was normal. You know, that was how things were done in a household. Mm-hmm. And I caught that collecting bug from him, of course, not to the extent that he did it, uh, but he would have an entire, he always had a whole room in the house that was filled from top to ceiling with model kits, mannequins in full uniform, you know, just wow. stacks and stacks of stuff all over the place. And I got into aviation uh, professionally, and I began collecting aviation military, aviation equipment, flight suits, helmets, flight equipment, etc. And it became slightly easier. I lived overseas for a while. I lived in Germany for a while. And it was actually uh, the collecting of that stuff is very common there. So it's a lot easier to find certain things. So my collection exploded because of that. Uh, But I, I, I never... I won't say never, but I really did not have as focused an interest in film-related stuff until just a few years ago. I had always been, as a model builder, because I started building models when I was five years old, Mm -hmm. I was really very interested in how Hollywood made filming models. It was done through a process called kit bashing, where they would take model kits, pull parts out of them, and use them as detail on larger models. And it actually became a thing with my father and I, we would watch old sci-fi series and try to pick out what models those parts came from. And it was, it was pretty common that we would do that. And that sort of was the first, the first time I can remember ever having a real interest in film related stuff that went by the wayside as I became a teenager. Mm. I still, I still built models as a teenager and I was all, I've always been a dork. (laughs) And then it, it, um, when I got into aviation and started collecting military equipment, et cetera, that sort of fell by the wayside until 
probably about four four or five years ago when I really started to look into it again. Mm. And then the ad app was built. And then I was like, cosplay seems cool. I'm going to try that. And I started making cosplay props. But then always having been sort of an amateur historian, I started looking into the backstory behind things of how they were built. And, mm-hmm. and that just sort of steamrolled to what I am today as a prop, uh, an amateur prop historian. Well, and what a great way to train your eye to detail by you know mm-hmm. having it in this tiny scale and seeing how stuff works to then just making that bigger in a replication, but having that attention to detail in your back pocket is such a great yeah. skill. I could only imagine. It all, it all was like, it was seemed like if you looked at it from the outside in, it would almost seem like my childhood was sort of like preparing me for this at, mm-hmm. in a certain way, because so many props, particularly from the seventies, eighties and nineties were made from old surplus military equipment. So being able to identify that and how to work with it is I don't want to say it's simple for me, but I have a few advantages because I've been involved in that world for mm-hmm. so long. And then so many things use model parts, et cetera, that, and then the, the techniques of building models transfers quite easily over into prop making. Yeah. Um, there are a few things you have to forget when you're making things for movies, but uh, for the most part, it transfers over rather well. That's so cool and interesting and and also having the background of understanding how certain things have to look historically right mm-hmm. to keep yeah. them and that i was watching i was scrolling through some of your tiktoks and i was like i've always had an interest of like okay how are they finding stuff to put in movies like what's the background behind getting things for film for a specifically like period specific or prop making that needs to fit well, inside of a world. 90% of it is going to be budget. For, but for the most part, when a film, say a film project is set in the 1930s, a lot of the stuff that's used day to day in the 1930s doesn't exist anymore. You mm-hmm. can't just go buy it. So what they do is they go to these things called prop houses. And in LA, there's hundreds of them. In Atlanta, there's hundreds of them. There, Wherever there's major film production, you find them. And there are places like, say, for instance, you need magazines or products from the 30s, but you need them to look new, not like antiques. There's a number of options you have. One of them is my favorite to go to is a place called Earl Hayes Press. They've been around since, uh, well, they've been around for 103 years. Wow. And they've been making movies that long. And like the all of the newspapers that you see in TV and movies come from them. Um, fake money comes mm-hmm. from them. Now, there are other places that do that, but they're just the one that I'm very familiar with and that I've done business with. Wow. Um, they they made all of the newspapers and paper products for Gone with the Wind um, for, uh, what is it, The Sound of Music. I actually have some of it that um, hadn't been used for production, wow. and they had it left over in the warehouse, and they just let me buy it. Um, so I actually cool. got uh, door decals for the Ecto-1 that were made for the film that I have in my shop now, and they just never got used by the movie, so they, they still have but it's places like that. And when you have things like furniture or cutlery, et cetera, any day-to-day items or even large items, there are other proposals like History for Hire is one that, spec- that specializes in period-related things. And they have props going all the way back you know, into the 1700s and before. And they're these massive warehouses that an art director or a director or most of the time the property master, the prop master, will go into and, and they have their, you know, their script. They know what they need per you know per shoot mm-hmm. per scene 
and they go and they find those items or something that will work. When none of that works, then it goes to the prop makers. Wow. And they say, make me a thing that does this job or fits this bill. And that's how things are found for film sets because the production of a movie, you've got sometimes a year or more before filming actually even begins. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is find, building your sets, finding your shooting locations, dressing them up to make them look right, getting everything sorted out before you can even begin to shoot things, which is why when the credits roll on a major film, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of names. Yeah. And sometimes each of those names represents a group of 20 people. So there's thousands of people involved in the making of a movie from people like me who make tiny little things that show up in a background wow. to all the way up to the director. And the director has a staff that's a mile long too. So there, it's, there's thousands of people involved in major productions oh. and it's all just a big, a big, uh, a big concert of people coming together to make it work. Yeah, my brain's currently exploding. I know, mine is too. I just, I guess because you don't, I don't have any part of that world, right? So why would I know an eighth and of that's that? And that's, that's what I love conveying to people because I, a lot of people think that I am steeped in Hollywood. <laughs> I'm not. I have, uh, when I first started doing this on TikTok, I had zero connection to Hollywood whatsoever. I was just a hobbyist. I was right. uh, a fan. And now I have a lot of connection to Hollywood that <laughs> I can't really talk about, but uh, it's, it, it's, it's a very, a lot of the information is readily available, mm -hmm. but it was just a matter of parsing through it, which I found out I was quite good at mm -hmm. and putting together these stories that most people, one, don't know about, and two, never really thought to care about mm -hmm. until that information is presented to them in the right way. Yeah. And that's, again, a lot of the feedback I get is I didn't know I wanted to know that until I heard it. Yeah. And it's these stories that I love because they are fun, rather odd, strange stories about someone else's job, essentially, that end up being really entertaining because they are connected to something that we as humans have an emotional response to film mm -hmm. and stories. Mm -hmm. And it, it, I think that's what draws people in a little bit. And I'm more than willing to continue telling these stories until people stop listening. Right. It's very similar to collecting antiques or vintage or family heirlooms, right? Mm -hmm. We all, uh, human beings, we like to think we're very uh, singular in this, right? Where, But everybody wants to find that common thread of humanity with their fellow man. Mm -hmm. And like yeah. what, what that indicator is going to be for understanding and friendship and all of that. And we have so many people have so many core memories around film and film with their family or friends or lovers or enemies or all of that. Mm -hmm. And I think you coming in and filling that hole in for people to be like, hey, like I love um, the common misconception of like sugar glass, right? And I love how yeah. <laughs> the way you address it in your videos, instead of being like, God, I have to explain this again, to be like, actually... I and then yeah, to see I what just, it's made out of. Whenever I have to retell a story, I assume that the people I'm retelling it to have never heard it. So mm -hmm. I don't I don't mind telling how sugar glass or candy glass as it's known is made over and over and over again. I don't mind that. Um, I have told the story of the Maltese Falcon probably 20 times now. And tomorrow someone will ask me about the Maltese Falcon and I'll tell it again. Yeah. And it's just it's just. I know that a lot of people are finding me for the first time and are looking at this information for the first time. So I, I 
do my best, and I'm a human being, I make mm-hmm. mistakes, I do my best to not be aggravated by it simply because this is information that for a lot of people, this is the first time they've ever heard it. Mm-hmm. So I get it. Yeah. I get it. But I, I do despise the people that push this information knowing full well it's wrong. Yes. And I Yeah. I can agree from that, from two sides, from the hairdressing side mm-hmm. and from just having this this show, right? And we've learned about a lot of different things. And like probably the one that comes to my mind first because it's behind me is that uranium glass is unsafe to use. Right. I right. have uranium glass in my house. So. Yeah. It is. Um, yeah. If it's not broken or blemished, you're fine. It doesn't, your cell phone yeah. is going to give you more radiation than yeah. a piece of glass is going to. But it's like, it's like those trigger words. Like the one in the hair industry is Olaplex. People mm-hmm. will think if you use this, it's a bond builder for the hair, right? It protects the bonds in the hair while you're coloring so that you don't create any damage or the damage is not as significant. But it's like organic or farm-raised. Like people will just be like, well, do you use Olaplex? And I'm like, no, I don't. But let's talk about why you think I should use it and where that's <laughs> well, coming from. I, I actually have never heard of Olaplex. It may come <laughs> as a shock to you that that's I okay. don't spend much time at a hairdresser's. <laughs> Uh, simply because I have none left. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. My husband is also hard of hair. And right. so... <laughs> I have never heard that. I am going to use it now. So, And I always tell my clients, I go, I married the perfect man because he's he's a perfect hairdresser husband. He's bald and he has health insurance. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I love my husband dearly. And he does his own hair. I don't cut his hair anymore. He does it. But yeah, so, I haven't I haven't been to a barber in years. Obviously, for good reason, I don't need to. But I you, feel that that's what, yeah, like you guys could be cousins, really. And, and but that that's something that I've learned the hard way is that um, any any man that is you know the same ethnicity as another man who is also shaved mm-hmm. has a head shaved and facial hair, mm-hmm. people will always tell them they look the same yeah. or similar, mm-hmm. just simply because that is the the. I am constantly told that I look like Walter White uh, from Breaking Bad. It's nonstop. And I've just accepted it at this point that that's just the way it is. Especially if if you wear glasses and your head is shaved and Mm -hmm. you have facial hair. You Mm -hmm. are Walter White. I'm going to go up and call him that. Hey, Walter. (laughs) Hey, Walter. Could you please um, mow the yard? Thank you. you. Can you go break bad down there with the bitches? (laughs) Excuse me, sir. Get your RV out of my driveway. (laughs) Right. Thank you. Stop making crystal in the driveway. (laughs) That shit-ass kid keeps coming over, and I'm tired of him. I've actually been rewatching this series as of late, uh, just simply because uh, I I enjoyed it the first time. Right, yeah. It's a great series. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So anyways, back... Back to vintage back, and things. <laughs> back to vintage, yeah. So when you started making like props and things for your personal collections, mm-hmm. what are some, I guess, like your vintage tip of the week? Of, if somebody wants to get into prop making, where do you suggest they start? Uh, the Pick a subject. Um, pick, like if you want to make props for cosplay or props for movies, it's it's roughly the same thing. What is it that you want to make? And then think about the most economical way you can do it. Now, YouTube is your friend. Mm. Absolutely is your friend for almost anything. Uh, If you own a 3D printer, that gives you a huge advantage. If you don't, think about buying one because they're extremely inexpensive anymore. You can get really good quality printers for a couple hundred bucks now. And they have a pretty easy learning curve on them. And again, 
there's a thousand tutorials on how to use them on YouTube. But it's it's really just a matter of picking a thing and figuring out what you want to make. And then how much do you really want to put into it? Because some people, <clears throat> excuse me, they want to make a cosplay for the weekend that they'll never wear again. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to put a whole lot of money into it. Cardboard is a fantastic material to start with. It really is. I made some of my, actually the very first movie prop I ever made was made out of cardboard. Oh, wow. Uh, and it's, it was what I thought a droid collar looked like from Star Wars. And it was a toilet paper tube and some model parts. And that was uh, the very first prop I ever made when I was 10, wow. 10 or 11 years old. And it, it, But it's just really a matter of how much do you really want to put into it? And then what is it you want to make? And then find out what skills you need to build, which for some people, that's really hard to figure out because they may have nothing going into this. They have no mm-hmm. skill set that they think is readily usable for this. But I am a firm believer that all human beings deep down are makers. And almost any human being that's physically able to do so can build anything they want. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of time and practice. So it's, I would, I would one, I would start with YouTube <laughs> to get a basis for what you might need if you have nothing that you know about. Uh, instructables.com is another place to go. There's a lot of wonderful tutorials on there. And also a thing called the RPF, which is the replica prop forum. And it's just the RPF.com. And it's, just a massive forum that's been around since 1996 Wow! of people building prop replicas, sometimes showing off real props, like actual screen use stuff. But for the most part, it's people making things from scratch out of whatever's available sometimes. And sometimes it's the, you know, like the original parts used to make them, et cetera. But that's a really good uh, place to go. A lot of people are completely unaware it exists. Yeah. I've never heard uh, but it. if it's, if you, if you you can almost because of the wonders of the internet, you can almost always find a tutorial to make almost anything you want, and then learn about the wonder that is EVA foam and mm-hmm. pepakura, which is a style of uh, paper folding, which a lot of people have used to make templates to cut out from foam or cardboard or whatever different wow. costumes. I made um, uh, Falcon's wings and jetpack from the MCU. Wow. To scale uh, for a client from Pepecura files and EVA foam. The entire thing is made of foam. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it, it took me a while to build, but it's again, it's a matter of how much you want to put into it. Yeah. But learn how to use a, uh, uh, a scalpel really well to cut correctly. And uh, don't, forget, don't forget about tape. Half the props in uh, movies are held together with tape and only barely sometimes. <laughs> That's so interesting. Um, there was, speaking of foam art and things like that, we had a neighbor here in my neighborhood. They, they have since moved. But she had a maker shop in her garage, and she was probably, I would say, 70 years old. Mm-hmm. And I would drive by, and sometimes the door would be open, and there would be huge sheets of like pink and blue house foam in her yeah. garage. And I was like, what are you making? And by the time it got, because this was like from Christmas to through the summer, and then I saw the mayor from Nightmare Before Christmas in her garage. Yeah. yeah. And she was making full-size foam replicas of the Nightmare Before Christmas for her <laughs> front yard. Oh, wow. She had like Jack and she had the fountain that she made with like spray foam and mm-hmm. actual foam. She had Sally. She had uh, lock, stock, and barrel. She, like all in her front yard. And then she did the same thing for the holidays and she had Olaf... 
and like all the abominable snowman like babies shit. in her yard and i was like i want to be that <laughs> cool when i'm that old god no shit wow yeah but i was like that was I, it for your thing of everybody's a maker you never know oh yeah what somebody's you, you, you do know you really do never know what people are capable of mm-hmm. uh and a lot of people are unaware of what they themselves are capable of until they sit down and try to do it and i always try to to kind of push people like you can do that mm-hmm. i have no doubt you can do that it's just a matter of just give it a shot i'll bet you you can yeah and it's been proven right time and time again. Only on a few occasions has someone really genuinely been incapable of doing something. But for the most part, almost every human being deep down is a maker. Mm-hmm. So I, I always try to inspire people as best I can to try to do things themselves. Yeah. Because it's, it's, there's so many tools available now that weren't available when I started doing it mm-hmm. You know, 30 years ago. It's given away how old I am here. <laughs> but it was, it, it was just... You know, there's so much information available now. It's 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 it, it was really it's not that hard to find, too. No, so. it's truly incredible what you can learn now from being online in any capacity. Yes. You know, yeah. the the mo- almost the entirety of the world's knowledge is available on your phone. Right. Yeah. Isn't that is just wild? Well, and I also yes. think that's why people get scared to create, too, because there's so many people already doing mm-hmm. it. So then they oh, think yeah. like, oh, I can't do it. Somebody's already doing it. And it's like. There's, there's, there's thousands of people that do what I do. Mm-hmm. And I doubt that there's, there's thousands of people that try to give that information out like I do. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. But that doesn't, has never stopped me from trying. Like there, I, I could sit down and I know I could build Boba Fett's costume mm-hmm. from, st- from top to bottom. I could. I won't. Because there are hundreds of people that make perfect examples of that. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, the world doesn't need 101 people making that. <laughs> you know, there's, yeah. there's, there's a lot of Boba Fett's available out there. Mm-hmm. So, which is why I sort of focus on the lesser known things. Mm-hmm. Um, just simply because to me, they hold, they hold more interest. I do love the really popular pop culture stuff. But right. um, I make odd things uh, sometimes like the uh, the... Uh, portable tracker from 1979's Alien oh. from original parts, That's so which is cool. made which is made from an old uh, uh, portable TV. Uh, <laughs> wow! And then finding out what stuff was made from often blows people's minds too, because they don't realize how simple an item can turn into this iconic thing that's on TV. That uh, lightsabers were made from old flash handles from cameras, and uh, Qui-Gon Jinn, Liam Neeson, his character in uh, um, The Phantom Menace, the first of the prequels, his communicator was a Gillette lady shaver (laughs) uh, with some bits added on. Those bits that they add on to props, by the way, are called greeblies. Oh. And uh, it's a term that that, uh, originates with industrial light and magic. They started calling them greeblies, and because ILM was pretty much king of the hill, it just sort of disseminated out, and everybody else started calling them greeblies. I have a theory about a prop that I see. I've seen it in like Austin Powers. You see it on like um, military officers in science fiction where they have like this pack of badges right here, right? And it's like blue or red. And I always am like, did they just use a Eclipse gum package for that? Because it looks Uh, (laughs) just like a gum package. Oftentimes that's just either uh, cut colored acrylic or it's just cast resin. 
Uh, this just has certain amounts of color in it, but I can see why you would think that. I'm always and like, is, they were just yeah. like, that gum looks like we could use that. It's yeah, a lot of, a lot of, uh, like to, I'm actually doing a, 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 um, a panel on this at dragon con at the end of the month, how to make costumes look like military uniforms, like how to add Ooh. things. And that's one of them is basically get some, some squares made out of plastic <laughs> in different colors and attach them to your uniform. It looks like rank tabs. It's a quick and easy way to do it. And when you are creating a, basically a fictional military unit it's just a fast way for people to look at that because we're so used to it now yeah to just look at it and go that's military mm. and that's it you know it's just all a, a, a visual cue that the audience will go that guy's military done and it's one of the many ways that hollywood does it and it's it's cheap you don't have to do a backstory mm -hmm. and it makes sense in everyone's mind right instantly recognizable yeah it doesn't have to be practical mm -hmm. half of the stuff in movies is impractical so it's 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 totally acceptable and almost expected right well yeah it's it's one of those things where and a lot of props that are set in the background right and maybe aren't like picked up by a character you know they're just filling the scene yeah they're not meant to be zoomed in on. They're not meant to be no. screwed. And you don't want to either. No. <laughs> <laughs> you really don't want to. Speaking of sci-fi props and stuff in the background, there's one that I guarantee you you've seen. It's been in use since about, I want to say it's earliest known sighting was in Buck Rogers back in the 1970s. Okay. Um, it's a couple of pieces of plastic with clear tubes and there's red neon lights in it. And there, you've seen it. Mm -hmm. I know you have. It's yeah. been in almost every sci-fi product. It has a model number, but no actual name. And it's a prop that was rented out for $75 a week to almost every sci-fi production. And it became a running joke. It was in almost every iteration of Star Trek from Star Trek The Next Generation on. It still exists to <laughs> yeah. this day. And it's made out of uh, swimming pool cleaners and some acrylic tube and neon lights. That's all it is. But it's this thing that shows up so much that in Airplane 2 oh. with William Shatner, they actually, for one of the first times, they focus on it. And William Shatner goes, what the hell is this? And the other actresses, I don't know. I'm not sure what its purpose is, but it's always been here. And it's just become this huge joke now to the be in the background that they were like, sci-fi. Will's going to be in this movie. We need to yeah. actively troll him for this. I mean, he was very much in on it. I mean, oh the, like God. it's just sort of this long-running joke in sci-fi that there it is. I and <laughs> great. You know, yeah, I, I'll, I'll watch old. Yeah, I know. I watch old sci-fi films now, and and I go, oh, there it is. It showed up. <laughs> I'm excited, you know? and I've seen, I've seen that. it in real life, and and it just it looks exactly like you're, it's supposed to, but you know, one side of it looks better than the other, so the side they present to the camera is always yeah, that better one. The but screen side. It's, yeah, it's fun. I recently learned about, because, you know, I love the names of products in movies, right? And TV. Oh, and yeah. Fake all of products, that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I learned about the cigarettes that they use that look like Marlboro Reds. Morley's. Yes. <laughs> Morley's. Yeah. As a matter of fact. Oh, my God. Since we're talking about Morley's. is one of the many packs of Morley's <laughs> that I own. <laughs> uh these are actually made by that same company earl hayes press i was gonna ask yeah they're made by earl hayes press and it's just a well partly because of licensing mm -hmm. but also because they made it illegal for cigarette companies to advertise they can't 
technically use real cigarette brands a lot of times. And I have more of these at my shop. I have actually every iteration ever made going back to like 1930s era cigarettes up to today and all the different variations, the lights, the uh, menthols, et cetera. And they're almost, they're almost always Morley's. There's a couple other fake brands that they use in Hollywood, but this is the most common one. And um, my favorite though is um, it looks like a pack of camels. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Except the animal only has one hump and they're called llamas. <laughs> Everything else is exactly the same. But there it's just there's so many brands like that too that get over and over reused. There's like Jets chips and uh, Jay's chips. Um, <laughs> there's specific names for um, uh, milk, etc., because they have to avoid that licensing because mm-hmm. it becomes expensive, etc. But then the most hilarious part, and I'll, I'll, I haven't posted the video of it yet, is the fake movies and fake magazines. Because oh, right. you always see those scenes where they're looking at a magazine rack, something that is sort of, you know, passe anymore. You really don't see that any longer. But in period films, they would have it. All those those magazines are fake. None of them are real uh, brands or real types of magazines. Like the stand-in for Playboy has been Playpen for. <laughs> 40, 50 years. <laughs> and all of that originated at Earl Hayes press. I actually wow. have one of those original covers from airplane oh where it was playpen. And <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just this goofy, goofy stuff. And they just get free reign to make whatever they want because it has to not match, but look close enough. Right. So it's, and if you, if you ever get a chance, watch one of those movies and pause it, and go through and read the titles of those magazines because some of them are absolutely hilarious. Uh, there's a one that sticks out of my mind. There's a, 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 a wedding magazine and it's just called Wedding Terrorist. <laughs> 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 and all of the little, you know, the little so, like sideline blurbs that are on it are all about like killing everyone at your wedding. <laughs> just all this other nonsense. And it was just some designer having fun with it. That right. Day. Hiding and they just, things. You see it in movies all the time. Yeah. Oh, There's man. always that kind of stuff hidden in films as well. So <laughs> um, it's fun to, or it's not open to the public. And really, honestly, unless you know the address, you're not going to find it. Yeah. But every time I go to LA, I go to Earl Hayes Press and just rummage through because they have like three or four where the place has been around for so long that they have three or four warehouses off site that were, I'm trying to get the owner to let me go through basically oh, yeah. for trade. Yeah. Like I will go, I will go tell him what's in there. Cause he doesn't even know what's in there anymore. Wow. And there could be surviving copies of Sam Spade's um, uh, business cards from wow. the Maltese Falcon in there because they made them all. Wow. And um, the only, I think one of the only known surviving original newspapers from 20,000 leagues under the sea was found in there. Holy and moly. Yeah. And it's just stacks of stuff uh. everywhere. And they don't even know what's in their own main building. They don't even know what all's in there. When I was there, this is the, my favorite story from Earl Hayes. When I was there the first time, they rolled out these three sheets of paper, and they're the uh, one of the original sets of blueprints made for the flux capacitor for Back to the Future. They found them rolled up in a vent. Oh my! <laughs> what? Because they keep in mind, until recently, no one cared about movie props. They were just discarded with wow. abandon. And the story that they understood was that there was a lot of air coming out of this vent, and it was getting cold. So whomever was up there stuffed the closest thing at hand up there. And it was the original blueprints for the flux capacitor that they stuffed in there. But because of that, they survived. Mm -hmm. Otherwise they might not have. 
So it's the same way the Death Star survived. Um, when the movie was, when the first Star Wars movie was done before it came out, they didn't want to pay for the storage fee for all the props and the models. So they ordered them to be discarded. And one of the guys that worked at the storage facility kept the Death Star. Oh my God. It's the, the only filming model of the Death Star. He kept it and took it to his mom's antique shop in Missouri, where it sat outside for 20 years in the weather until it was bought by a guy that owned a honky tonk <laughs> where it was used as a trash can. Oh my God. And then, yeah. And then it was purchased by another guy who eventually sold it to his current owner, Gus Lopez, who is an extremely well known in the prop collecting community. Um, and he had it restored and now it's in beautiful condition, but had it not been used as a trash can in a country Western honky tonk, it wouldn't have survived. Wow. And there's a lot of stuff that, that still survives because of that. And it, the stories behind how things made it to where they are is honestly some of my favorite stuff. That's incredible. Well, and it's, you know, it's the thing that we talk about it here, you know, of like finding something at an estate sale or a thrift store or whatever that you're like, how are you here? Like, how are you in this condition? Like, what, what happened to you? (laughs) What happened? (laughs) What's your story? And it's because, and I think too, because just of the, of like our generations of people who grew up with such a boom of, imagination from tv and film and all of that type of stuff and now having the connection that we can have with people across the world i think that's why props and things like that are now becoming super collectible because you can tell somebody you know in germany like look at this original gremlin i have and they're going to fully mm-hmm. appreciate it rather yeah. than like your mom being like please stop bringing those home <laughs> yeah stop bringing that trash into this house yeah the the amount of the amount of connection that we have uh, worldwide, mm-hmm. I agree, has really sort of spurned this on. And also, I think, so back in 1970, MGM had this massive prop auction. It was the first of its kind. They needed to make space. So they, instead of just discarding things, they thought, well, maybe there's some money to this. So they had this massive auction of, I think it was like 13,000 items from their warehouses. And it included some of the only surviving pieces from Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. And it was there that what was believed to be the only surviving pair of ruby slippers was put up for auction. And in 1970, they went for an obscene price, $16,000. Whoa. And they were touted as being the only surviving pair of shoes. Well, it ended up being a lie. Um, they paid, MGM paid a guy to go in and catalog everything in there. And the story is told 10 different ways, mm-hmm. but essentially he found a box with four pairs in it, but he only told MGM that he found one. Oh my God. One of those pairs ended up in the hands of Debbie Reynolds shortly thereafter, who had one of the biggest prop collections in the world. Whoa. The, the mother of Carrie Fisher, yeah. Debbie Reynolds. Yeah. Um, shortly after that auction was done and everybody made this big deal out of it, it was worldwide news. A young lady from Tennessee. Well, she was an older lady at this stage from Tennessee came forward and said, no, I have a pair. Turns out she had gotten them in a giveaway oh in 1940 when she was 16 years old. There was this write-in contest, the best movies of 1939, and she won second place. And her second place trophy was a pair of shoes from The Wizard of Oz. This is how little studios cared about movie props. That's why I love telling this story, because it illustrates how little they cared about mm-hmm. props at the time. 
The first place prize, by the way, was the gavel from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Oh, wow. Because a lot of people ask what the first place was. And that still survives as well. Well, the very next year, that same company that did that write-in, they gave away the what was thought to be the only surviving uh, rosebud sled Wow! from Citizen Kane. And it was won by a 10-year-old boy uh, who used it as a sled because <laughs> he was 10. Yes. And yeah. that's as what 10-year-olds do with sleds. Yep. And it's, it's damaged on the front where he ran it into a tree because oh, that's just how <laughs> it goes. Man. But they made only one for the movie. It was the only hero prop, what's called a hero prop, used for the primary filming stuff for the movie. They made several balsa wood versions that were thrown into the fire at the end of the movie. I don't mean to give up spoilers on an 80-year-old film. But, <laughs> um, but they, one of those still survives, and it's owned by Steven Spielberg. Oh, wow. But that, that original sled sold a few years ago for an obscene amount of money. But no one at that time particularly Hollywood cared about this stuff. They would throw it away on mass. Um, one of Errol Flynn's surviving Robin hood costumes was pulled out of a dumpster and it's one of the only ones to still survive. Um, wow. one of the, uh, the very, the, the very famous, uh, uh, what is it? Um, hourglasses from wizard of Oz was pulled out of a trash can. And that was when people realized that that was not sand in there. That was gelatin. that was probably one of the only ways they could get it to show up on film well sand couldn't be dyed red at the time the technology didn't exist but then they also used asbestos for snow in that movie so there is that (laughs) the wizard of oz is a very very dark production when you start looking at it it is it really for a lot of reasons yeah we had the town that i grew up in had um two of the actors that played munchkins that lived mm-hmm. in our town and they were in the uh, spud day parade every year. <laughs> of course they were. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. lived, there was like a little um, community, like nursing home, senior center mm-hmm. and they lived there. Oh, well, that's cool. They were darling. I bet they were Yeah, always happy. <laughs> and then I think, Oh, was, we'll have to check this in the curio corner, but one, the, one of the former owners of Karsten's bakery, wasn't she in the wizard of Oz? Oh, I, Ooh, I think so. I don't know. Uh, we'll Not check it. There was another. So I think there was like two or three people that lived in our area that were munchkins in the film. Oh my. I don't know why they're from Idaho, but that's pretty neat. Because there was nothing to do Every, in Idaho. When, whenever <laughs> whenever they're whenever that's brought up, and particularly the munchkins, the actors who played the munchkins, I feel it's it's always necessary to mention that they were treated absolutely horribly. Horrible. Yes. Yes. Uh mm-hmm. during that production. Um yeah. in fact, so was everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, especially Judy yeah. Garland. Oh yes, uh, oh, her so you story go, is devastating. Yeah, you could go for hours talking. It's about really all the hard watching that movie now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, knowing all this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, as as much as as much as I know about that movie now, I won't watch it again. No, I can't. Uh, just because like, I know how poorly everyone was treated on set. Yes, thank you for mentioning that and making that yes. because yeah, it was uh, for those of you that don't know, terrible for not only specifically the munchkins but a lot of people on that set and it's incredible that well not incredible because of the time it was made just the shit that happened that's uh yeah that's that's a a remnant of the studio system that was going on at the time too Mm because actors were essentially they were told how to live Mm -hmm. um humphrey bogart was actually one of the first ones to really fight back against the studio system because it was basically they paid them x amount of dollars a week yeah but they had no choice in where they lived. 
uh, what they ate, who they saw, what they did with their spare time. They were essentially owned by the mm -hmm. studio. And Judy Garland was no different. And of course, the un, what we would consider today unbelievably horrid abuse mm -hmm. back then was considered commonplace, right? Uh, particularly for young actresses. Uh, young women in Hollywood were horribly abused by mm -hmm. the studio system and by pretty much everyone. And it was absolutely dreadful the more you look into it. Yeah, I had, I had heard, you know, bits and pieces of Judy Garland's story. And then thanks to my nightly news or TikTok, seeing, you know, like a multi-part video on what she actually went through and experienced. I was just like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. It's, it's, it's unbelievably bad. Yeah. Uh, and just, uh, it's a very unpleasant topic, but one that must be talked about. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Cause it still happens. Yeah. It yeah. still happens. Well, and it's, yeah, it's, um, that, and that's the thing is having the conversations about difficult things still has to continue, whatever the subject matter is, right? Absolutely. You have yeah, to absolutely. be willing to understand where all of that comes from. But I did have um, just one more question for you. And I wanted to know what your least favorite movie props are. Like, what do you look My at? Least... Oh, dear. <laughs> I know it's a long list. <laughs> So tired. my least favorite movie prop is not because of build quality. The build quality on it is absolutely wonderful. It's for how it takes me out of the story. Um, that is usually when I, when I look at a prop and it's just, when I think of it as bad, I see it as completely out of place in the story, completely. It doesn't belong for any number of reasons. And for me, it's from Beverly Hills Cop 3. It's a prop called the Annihilator 2000. And it's, it's, it's basically like it's making fun of, of gun culture and it's making fun of um, hunting culture and stuff like that, which is totally fine. It's, it's Hollywood. They can do what they want. Mm -hmm. But it is, it's, a, it's a firearm that has a CD player, a microwave, uh, uh, and all these ridiculous things on it. And it was too much. They could have done it in a, in a way that would still have been funny. But they just, they, they made it so over the top that it was like, it just took me completely out of the story, which I rarely say this about film. Mm -hmm. Beverly Hills Cop 3 was not a difficult story to be taken out of because it was shit. <laughs> but it, I, uh, I do not like the movie. It was, mm -hmm. a, it was a cash grab was all it was. Yeah. It was basically fulfilling a contractual obligation. Yeah. But it was the prop itself. I've, I've handled a couple of them up, uh, in real life and they're extremely well built. And they are exactly probably what the art director wanted. Mm -hmm. But to me, it was just so much in one sitting mm -hmm. that it was, it just as unbelievable as the rest of the movie was, that was so far that jumped the shark so much that it couldn't come back. Yeah. And to me, that is my least favorite um, for those reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause I've seen some props that are absolutely horribly built because usually it's time constraints. Cause sometimes you get hours to build something from scratch for a scene mm -hmm. and it comes across you can tell but it still fits the scene so it works mm -hmm. so build quality has never been a thing for me but it's just when it ruins the story yeah because it's too much that's that's where i see bad props mm -hmm. and that's happened just with like what i do for a living when i see something like that just wasn't well thought out of in like a scene to do with hair or beauty or anything like that i'm like that would never happen yeah. Now it's just oh, like, that's, 
I'm like, that is not something I want to go into. <laughs> yeah, try try like, being a nurse oh, and watching right. the medical oh, stuff. I'm, I, I am friends with a couple of people that are medical professionals. And when they watch scenes with particularly emergency rooms, yes. they sit there and they go, what the hell are you doing? Why are <laughs> they know. doing my, that? Like, For me, it's, 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 it. it's, it's military equipment and yep. the... I'll always look at it and go, that's not correct for that period. That's not correct for that period. That's mm-hmm. not correct for that period. You know, mm-hmm. that came later, et cetera. And that stuff will drag me out. But I, I try to avoid it because, I mean, particularly in the Second World War, in, equipment changed so rapidly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's nearly impossible for them to get it 100% right all the time. Right. Well, and the time it takes to, you know, if it's not a historically yeah. accurate all the way down to the bones film, yeah. they're not going to spend yeah. their budget on... If it's not a Steven Spielberg budgeted film, it's probably not going to be a hundred percent. Oh, that's good to know. Because they just don't, they just can't. They have to use what's available. <laughs> right. Before yeah. we get into today's estate sale walkthrough, where mm-hmm. can our listeners find you? Uh, on almost any social media at Props to History, uh, you can find my podcast, the Prop History Podcast, on Apple, Spotify. Um, Google podcast, etc. Anywhere you listen to podcasts, mm-hmm. it's the Prop History Podcast, and then uh, uh, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, etc. At Props to History. Fantastic, and of course, we'll have that plugged everywhere so our listeners can find you. And please go and listen to him, um, Mike and Greg's show. It is fantastic, and they really—it's such a fun thing to listen to to get that behind the scenes um, kind of introduction into your favorite films. It's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I said this a little bit before we started recording, but it's always hard to write an estate sale walkthrough for somebody that specializes so deeply in something <laughs> because they generally have all of their favorites. So I have to go into a little different side of it. Before we get into it, I do want to tell the listeners that are joining us this week, every week on the Mothball Prophecies, we do an imaginary estate sale walkthrough, garage sale, time travel, what have you. And it has to do with the guest's favorite things. So I kind of go through their stuff and see what they collect, what they like, and build these scenarios. Now the scenarios are completely made up, but the items are most definitely real. And the only thing that you have to do is pick one or the other, and you are responsible for finding your own loopholes. We're not going to tell you how to do that. Okay? (laughs) Fair enough. Are we ready? Yeah, let's just do it. It was fun. Yeah, it was fun up until now. (laughs) (laughs) So today's Estates I'll walk through. We are going to start with some time travel. We're going to borrow from Bill and Ted. We're going to take their phone booth for this because Marty and Doc, they're currently working on theirs. So it was out of commission. Before we get into the time machine, we need to figure out what set we are going to go to. Do we go back to watch them build the puppets and sets for the labyrinth? Work in the prop shop for Star Trek? Or help with the building of starships from Star Wars. Is this is this my choice? All three of us. You get to go first, though. Uh, okay, I'm going to vote for Labyrinth. Oh, <gasps> <laughs> me too. That's my favorite okay. movie. Well, let's let's go, Jill. Ew, I'm going Star Wars. Oh, interesting, interesting. Good choice, though. Good choice. Yep, the Labyrinth is my number one favorite movie. I love Jim Henson. Anything, mm-hmm. so it's. Oh, good to know. Good to know. <laughs> All right. So we've we've time traveled. Next, we come back. Now we're on modern day, and we go to a local estate sale. We wander through the garage to find a selection of various tins. Do you choose first aid tins for various ailments and cures, 
tobacco tins or Edison bulb car lamp tins? I'd have to go with the car lamp tins. Ooh. I think I, ooh. Tobacco. (gasps) Wow, you guys are shocking me at every turn today. I already regret it, so it doesn't matter. Okay. I'm going to go with the um, first aid tins because I don't have a lot of those yet. I'm surprised you don't. I know. Okay. Our last stop is from an online prop auction looking directly at you, prop store. We have money to play and we're going to play. Okay. (laughs) Interestingly enough, prop store is also the sponsor of the prop history podcast. So there, I got a chance to plug it. Nice. We'll go ahead and send him an invoice. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So money is no object here, right? We get to have, yeah, yeah. We're very wealthy for this one. Okay. You you get to have the winning bid on one of these three items. You have oh, Big Web's bowling ball from Kingpin, the flamethrower from Spaceballs, <laughs> or, oddly enough, okay, this always happens in every estate <laughs> I walk through, the hourglass from The Wizard of Oz. Well, the bowling ball itself, uh, I know precisely where that is. <laughs> I already own the flamethrower from Spaceballs, so I'm going to have to go with the Damn. hourglass. I, I really tried. I know. I'm going with the flamethrower. Baseballs was like one of my favorite movies. I love baseballs so much. <laughs> um, I am going to go for the bowling ball just because I like how campy it is. I just love oh, yeah, it. Oh, yeah. Like that campy. is very yeah. campy. Between yeah. that yeah. bowling ball and the bowling ball from Mystery Men with the skull. Oh. oh that is such a such a wonderful prop. Yeah. I like that I one, too. absolutely love that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is that's everything for today's Estates I'll Walk Through and the show. Mike, thank you so much. Yes, this was fun. Thank, thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful. It was this absolutely was wonderful. Just a treat. And I am so glad that we finally got to delve into that side of mm-hmm. antiques and vintage. You guys, be sure to check him out on all of those platforms at Props to History. And stick around for this week's Curio Corner, where we dive a little bit deeper into today's prophecies. I I always say this at the beginning of every Curio Corner, just how great it was to sit down with this person. But I honestly did not know what to expect when we were going to sit down with Mike. I've, of course, seen his stuff on TikTok and watched and been mystified by the world of props. And it was so great to sit down with somebody who knows a lot more about it. Yeah, I mean, we haven't talked about this kind of stuff. And so it was really uh, great to talk about something different. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love everybody we talked to, but this was something that was just like way out. Like we've never even like. Yeah. And of course, like I've always like there's movie props that I would love to own, but like to see his collection and his little space and all the stuff he either buys or makes was pretty. Finding out those props are made out of like shoestring and cardboard and some duct tape. Yeah. No, man, I want like fancy yeah i want to know that it's actually this this or that well and then i was um mystified by just like the the glass and like what is that made of and i was like do i need to order a prop glass to break it just so i have the experience of what that was like try it and be like oh that's fun because you know you see it in the movies where they break the glass and then they stab you yeah now it's all fake now it's it also, like ruined a couple things to me. And I'm like, oh, I know ruined your movie magic. <laughs> I'm so excited to see what the future has in store for him. He's so talented. And I hit the way he delivers the 
education stuff on his platform is fantastic. I did have a correction to make. I had spoke about the owner of the Karstens Bakery here in Idaho Falls. Um, and there are two people that own Karstens Bakery. And that is Shannon and Will Willie Karstens. So Willie Karstens is from Germany originally, and that's where he learned how to be a baker. For those locals, that bakery has been in Idaho Falls for almost 50 years on Cliff Street in the same exact location, making handmade goodies with all butter, no imitations, everything from hand. And I was reading, like, I remember talking about people that went to the beauty school that's right there to Vogue. And then my aunt used to work at a salon over there. And everybody would walk to Karsten's to get a snack or something. And like two of their most popular items is their honey cake or their beehive cake, which is a beehive cake made with honey filled with pudding and topped with fresh whipped cream. Yeah. And then, right, cream cheese brownies. And I think that Karsten's Bakery made my grandparents' wedding cake. For real? For real. Oh, my gosh. Right. That's So I wanted to talk a little bit about Shannon Louise Bidwell Karsten. She is the one that I spoke about in this episode. And she was not in the Wizard of Oz, but she did a lot of work within that community. Um, She was a loving member of, and this comes directly from Shannon's beautiful obituary. She passed away January 8th of 2020. So just last year. I know. And her and Willie were married in 1960. I just, right? So she was a longtime member of the Little People of America. She was a dedicated bringer of dwarfs across America together for companionship, support, and friendship. She did Mary Kay. She went to garage sales. She was a homemaker, a boss, a loyal friend, cousin, wife, mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. And every time I've ever heard anybody speak about Shannon in town, they have the nicest things to say about her. And just how wonderful she was to meet and interact with and to be at the bakery with. And yeah, I just think and that bakery is still in town. They're still running. It's still run by Willie. And I believe one of their grandsons is working inside the bakery. And they we should. And they have like vintage pictures on the walls. They have a pair of lederhosen that were Willie's from when he was in Germany. So I just, if you're local, please go support Karsten's Bakery over there on Cliff Street. Because it's just, what a legacy. I love that. I love those little, like, you know, family-owned businesses that have lasted this long. It just shows to you, like, how good they are, that they're customers. Like, it's just, Mm -hmm. like, everything. Yeah, and they opened in 1968. And that little part of downtown has not been, like, I'll use the quotes, revitalized, like other parts of downtown. Mm -hmm. it still just has all that charm i just love it i just love it it's so cute and the guy that was in the wizard of oz lived in shelly oh so he did actually yes so so there i wasn't all wrong i was just mixed up so even as dark as the wizard of oz is Mm -hmm. that we are finding out now um a lot of that is people are obsessed with that is the dressing up Mm -hmm. the cause as you will yes and um so we most pretty much most people know what cosplay is they have conventions and all across the country all across the world actually Mm -hmm. um the ideas behind the costumes that people make are like wow incredible 
me. I couldn't even like, I'd be like, I wear this t-shirt and it has a person on there. I worked at one Comic-Con with a friend. Did you really? I was blown away by not only the creativity, but the accuracy. And you would see people from like the sky ramp walking across the street from one of the hotels, just like hordes of people in costume coming across the street into the convention center. Um, Yeah, but nobody. And so I didn't really know when it started and whatever, but um, the history behind it is quite fascinating. So this article um, comes from theartifice.com. Um, initially dubbed as costuming, cosplay began in the late 1930s in North America. Right? Wow. My face just went, what? I know. I was thinking 90s. Right. I thought we invented it. (laughs) Nope. We're not that cool. Um, But back then, cosplay did not require participants to mimic characters' appearance. Rather, they simply needed to dress appropriately for the genre, which is what Boris J. Ackerman did in his futuristic costume when he attended a sci-fi convention. He was the first attendee to show up in costume. So in the following years, conventions began to look like masquerade balls and prizes were given to whomever had the best costume. In Japan, the Magna series. Oh, man, I'm going to totally watch this. Yurisi Yasura. Your C, Yatsura. I'm sorry, Japan. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, the tele, the television series Mobile Suit Gundam. Oh yeah, Gundam. Gundam. Thank you. Thanks to my brothers. Shout I, out. Hey, Majin still don't have to say it. It's okay. <laughs> Helped launch the movement as Japanese college students eagerly dressed as their favorite characters for conventions. Barring the practice of masquerading from North America, fans would reenact their favorite scenes, which added to the excitement as they were able to display their adoration for the series. But it wasn't until like 1948 that the term cosplay was invented. So I Uh, still kind of, yeah, we we did it. We did it. It was us. Um, Can so cosplay was invented combining the word costume and play cosplay i mean makes sense (laughs) it's the first mashing of the words yeah put them together and what do you get yeah uh this was coined by the japanese reporter nobuyuki takahashi nice job i feel like you did pretty good did it guys i did it um when he translated the word masquerade to the japanese audience he thought that the word sounded too old-fashioned and used cosplay to describe the concept. Fast forward to the day, a time when cosplay has created a subculture of its own. In North America, it is no longer odd to see people donned in costume at conventions. Cosplay is no longer limited to just sci-fi or anime, but has branched into subcategories such as superheroes, cartoon characters, video game characters, and like pretty much anything you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Similarly, Japan has embodied cosplay as part of their pop culture, especially in districts such as Harajuku. Harajuku, uh-huh. Yeah. And Shibaya. Shibaya. It's fine. Sorry, Japan. Sorry, Japan and Gray for all that. 
Cosplayers in these areas dress up on a daily basis, so it is not odd to see someone stand out amongst the civilians. Although many cosplayers participate for fun, there are some who do it to earn a living. For example, cosplay celebrity Jessica Nigier became popular with her sexy Pikachu costume was posted on the internet. I love that. Really? Can somebody do a sexy Gengar, please? Let's do it. Let's have it all. Yeah. A ghastly, a sexy ghastly. (laughs) Sexy Bulbasaur. Oh, yeah. I Mm want to see a sexy Bulbasaur. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Since then, she's appeared in conventions as official cosplay model for numerous characters such as Connor Kenway from Assassin's Creed 3, Vivian Squall from Killer is Dead, and the female version of Captain Edward Kenway, Assassin's Creed 4, Black Flag. Black Flag. Her fandom has grown exp- exponentially as she has Facebook fans. I mean, one per see, guys, you don't know who you- when you're going to go viral. You don't. I wonder if she's the one. What was her name? I think she's the one I'm thinking of that I've seen. Jessica Knight Nigir in I-G-R-I. Oh, yeah. I've seen her stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, this article just goes on and on and on. But I just was like blown away that it started in the 30s, which makes sense Mm because they did have the masquerade balls and stuff like that. But the people get into it. It's incredible. There was. So when I was at Comic-Con in Salt Lake, there was a person dressed up as the what's the black dragon's name from how to train your dragon toothless oh yeah toothless she had this full costume on that was the arms the feet the wings and the head right and she had to bend over at the waist to make it look like the full dragon so she was bent over with her hands her fists on the ground and the head on the back of her head and she Mm -hmm. did like the whole play scene of when he first meets Toothless and the dragon's like bouncing around and bobbing its head. Goosebumps as I talk about it. Like just. Well, it's like the people who do the um, Transformer costumes. Mm-hmm. When they hold themselves up to look like um, Optimus Prime or I can't think of anybody else. But I like just watching that. I'm like, good or, on you. Right. I can figure out. And when Guardians of the Galaxy first came out, that was around that time that that con was. And there was somebody dressed up as Groot in like stilts, like a full ass tree. And I was like, wow, I feel like an imposter here. I'm not cool <laughs> enough to be here. I, I know. Every time I see, I'm just like, I just, I'm, I'm old. I feel old because I can't do it. But I love that Mike goes to a ton of cons. He's got a couple that he's been to this year. I'm sure many more. If you guys are not following Props to History on Instagram and TikTok, and please go and do that. I have learned some really fascinating things from him. And then the people he collaborates with, he's just super great all around. And that was all we had today for Mike's Curio Corner. Thank you so much for tuning in this fine day, whatever day of the week you're checking in with us. Right now, we would like to thank our beloved patrons. And we have a few to add. I know that was exciting to get when you told me that. I was like, oh, guys, stop. We have some really fantastic things coming up for the Patreon. We have a really fantastic idea for the holidays coming up. Um, we have another bag going out this week for that top tier. And I can't wait. I was messaging Spellcheck and I was like, here's the color pattern. Let's go with this. We have some fun new merch that's going to be coming out. All those things. 
To see all the info about our Patreon, you can visit the link in our Instagram bio or on the mothballprophecies.com and click the Patreon tab. We would love your support. And we love the people we get to interact with. We just had another great vintage sale. We moved uh, the vintage sales over to our Facebook Patreon page. You do have to have a Patreon account to access that page. And it's just been great. A lot of great things went out this last week. We would first like to start out by thanking Katrina and Erica in Arizona. Gray in Colorado. Emily and Crystal in Nevada. Ruth in British Columbia. Ruby in Ohio. Aaron in Wisconsin. RJ in Florida. Gina in South Carolina. Julia in Sweden. Jasmine in Kentucky. Kyla in Indiana. Javier, Shanna, Mandy, and Riley in California. And we have Betty, Lisa, Aaron, TC Liono, Melissa, Christina, Becky, and Ashley in Idaho. A gigantic thank you to our wonderful team, Gray, for making us sound like we know what we're doing week after week after week. And for spell check, helping us look really good on paper. And when you sew stuff for us. We love yeah. you so much. So much. As always, we hope you find some good shit. And we really hope you're looking under those tables. Bye. Yeah.